Welcome to Talking Success with Asma Mir in partnership with Withers, the international law firm. Every day we're being influenced. Every day you're changing. Be inspired. No one could ever throughout my life put more pressure on me than I put on myself. I'm living the dream. I just want that to last. <laughs> I'm Asma Mir, and this is a series where successful people reveal the defining moments of their careers and indeed their lives. Because we all face moments of crisis, it's how we respond that makes all the difference. We are part of a much larger harmonic. And when you see it that way as yourself, as this like little tiny being on this little speck of dirt, you go, that's a humbling thought. So what is it that I'm here to do? And let me go after doing that. And uh, the rest takes care of itself. Today, I'm speaking to Ronaldo Brutico. It's a challenge to do him justice in a short introduction. He has founded businesses from clothing to television and a successful law center. He's occupied senior positions in major companies. He founded a non-profit in 1987, which since has been focused on the responsibility of business to address social and environmental issues. He is also the CEO and chairman of H2 Clipper, an aerospace development company. Oh, and he has written books about the future of energy. Ronaldo, you're a very busy man. I understand that. So thank you very much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm going to begin with one of our big questions. Is there something that people incorrectly assume about you? If, if they don't know me well, uh, yes, they, they tend to think of me as a visionary. A visionary is not someone who gets it done, someone who dreams it up. And what they don't understand about me is I like both sides of the equation. I'm basically a mason. I love laying one brick down and putting another on top of it. So I love building companies with one brick at a time. So um, that unusual combination of somebody who enjoys to create at the 30,000 foot level, and then I like to figure out where the last screw goes. So that's my joy. <laughs> um, is it fair to assume, talking about assumptions, that uh, may be incorrect, that you are someone who doesn't get easily bored, but who does something, does it well, and then looks for the next challenge because you have transitioned yes, uh, quite quite a bit, haven't you, throughout your career? Yeah, Actually, I'm so glad you asked that. Congratulations. A lot of people kind of skip that question because if you look at my background, it's so checkered. How would you make any conceivable sense out of the guy who basically co-founded with one other guy, two other guys, the first pay television company in the world? I did that in 1972. And then I went on to broadcast television, motion pictures, all kinds of different stuff. And then I went on to organic food and et cetera, clothing, and it goes, keeps going on. And, 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 and what I always say to people, try to figure out what the common denominator is. And the answer is I have a profound belief that I've been blessed with enough talent and, and work ethic that I can get almost anything done. So the question is what's worth doing? And so my career is about a series of questions where I asked, how could I help? You know, what, what needs getting done that somebody like me has to try and tackle because it isn't going to get done otherwise. And then I, once I do that and it's done, then I move on. Now, most people in business don't do that because you make a lot more money if you stick around after your success, if you mine that success over and over again. And uh, most people get caught um, thinking that what they did is who they are. And most people, I think even more so, get caught up in their ego. So in their ego, they think they did it, which, of course, is the biggest laugh of all, because none of us does anything by ourselves. We are part of a much larger harmonic that's literally 
it's the universe, uh, not just the planetary level. And when you see it that way as yourself, as this like little tiny being on this little speck of dirt, you know, you know, third planet out from the sun, this mediocre star in a galaxy that's not particularly central to the universe, you go, that's a humbling thought. So what is it that I'm here to do? And let me go after doing that. And uh, the rest takes care of itself. So every single one, if you go through every single thing I've done, you can say, well, what were you trying to do there? What was the goal? And I can answer it. And then you'll go, okay, I get it. That's the thread, the red line. That must be very satisfying for you. Um, your undergraduate degree was in economics and philosophy. And I wonder what kind of values, what kind of grounding did that instill in you that, that has stayed with you till today? Well, it was, it was two separate degrees, actually. What stayed with me, first, the economics. Um, that was a, an interesting way to wrap my head around macro and microeconomics. I didn't do that because I thought I'd ever use it. I did it because um, it was something that made my family very happy. They had never gone to college. And the idea of philosophy as a major struck them as only one, one step worse than art. <laughs> so I, I took philosophy on my own nickel, as it were. I, I, I said, oh, well, what's, what's the most interesting to me is philosophy. And then, as you know, I eventually got a law degree, which most people think is the ultimate ticket. But what I found was philosophy has been far more useful to me than the other two degrees. And I assume will continue to be for the rest of my time. Mm. I also have a law degree and I've never used it. Not once. Oh, I use it every day. I just don't practice law. Uh, Formally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you're right. It's a bit of a golden ticket. People are very impressed when you say you have a law degree. Yeah, and I did very well. I had these extraordinarily high marks and whatnot. And I was order of the coif and all that good stuff. So I, I had a real... Uh, opportunity, a huge, when I graduated, a uh, starting salary job I was offered in a major law firm. And I turned it down when the partner who gave me this very generous offer asked me, well, why'd you turn it down? And I said, because it's just not me. That's not what I'm here to do. I can't see how I can be relevant if all I do is help you uh, carry somebody's briefcase for seven years and try to become partner in some kind of a paper chase. So I said, you know, he said, so what are you going to do instead? I said, well, I'm going to be unemployed. Goodness me. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I started the California Law Center. It doesn't have any money. And we're suing a lot of very big companies right now. So I'll just keep doing that till I figure out what to do next. And it'll it'll show up. And it, it, of course, it always does. Now, you mentioned um, the California uh, Law Center. Is it true that you were the youngest ever attorney to argue before the California Supreme Court at the time? Yeah, it is true. Yeah, I was. I, <laughs> How old were you? I was... I think I just turned 25 because I turned 25 in February. I was admitted to the bar in February. And I think we argued in May, but I've been bringing, I've been suing that case for two years earlier when I was in law school hmm. and we had a wonderful decision. We won six to one and one justice who voted against me is the only justice in the history of the California Supreme Court ever impeached for senility. And the case was so big because it was the largest class action in the history of the United States at the time. That time was a huge number, $130 million, which was an enormous number back in 1969 when I brought the case in 1970. And so what happened is the city attorney from San Diego, the city attorney from Los Angeles, and the city attorney from San Francisco all jumped in when it got to the Supreme Court on my side, having ignored me up until that point. <laughs> It was really fun because at that age, you know, you love to see that your dream, that mm -hmm. justice could be done. You want to see that happen. 
And the largest firm in California defended, uh, that was the phone company. So there were a lot of stories about this David and Goliath thing. Hmm. And I'm walking out of the courtroom and suddenly the door opens and all these flashbulbs go off all over the place, you know? And I'd been doing some interviews on radio and television and LA Times. And that instant, I had this awareness, oh my gosh, I don't ever want to litigate again. Because I thought, you know, if you can beat the biggest law firm in the state against the biggest defendant in the country, in the world, at this level of quality court, if you can win that, and still while you're doing that, the phone company is doing it to us with another case behind that and another case behind that. So what the phone company was doing was sending in platoons. So even though I was handling the platoon they sent against me, which was the biggest platoon, but while I was fighting that case, they sent another platoon in to do something else. So to me, I realized from that day forward, I'm not going to change society by litigating. And so I thought, okay, what? how, how do you change society? How, how do you get it to work better? And um, then it came back to me, my God, I never thought I'd go into business because I was the I was the wide tie guy with the with the full beard who was doing draft resistance counseling. Right. And I started the first public interest consumer law center in California. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I took all the wrong courses in law school, because <laughs> if I'm going to go into business, I better learn that stuff. Because I it, it occurred to me, and I, I'm really fond of this. I gave a little talk to all my friends in the nonprofit world. And I said, I'm going to go into business because I think that's where the change has to occur. If all we do is walk away from business and let the other guys who are venal and greedy run it, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get disruptive business that's more like a pathogen than it is a, a cure. Hmm. And so that's what triggered that. So I walked away from this giant career in litigation and laws and all that sort of And I just waited for what needed to happen next. And it did. And then the next one and the next one and the next one. And each time I would finish it, I'd feel very good about what I did. And I go, okay, I don't need to do that anymore. It's done. Tell me about the first pay cable TV company that you co-founded. What was your vision there? How did you think you could change the world doing that? Oh, that's a good one. It was real simple. I was asked by a guy with a lot of money who owned, a, who was chairman of the board of a large company. In those days, the American Stock Exchange was the younger sister, but very vigorous to the New York Stock Exchange. This is before NASDAQ. The chairman of the board of that company was one of the few people who donated money to the law center when I was fighting the phone company. and was, I think, having a, a vicarious thrill over some of the stuff I did. <laughs> So um, when I came to him one day and I said, it's time for me to go get, I, my wife is pregnant. It's time for me to go get a job, a real job. And he said, well, I got this little company down on uh, Olympic Boulevard, West Los Angeles. And would you look at that for me? Because there's this crazy idea this guy has got there that like somehow you could do television and you could charge for it or do movies or something. And, you know, we've been spending millions of dollars. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I don't know what's going on. So I said, well, that's great because the three things I had decided I was going to do one of the three was basically take down the three networks, take down big oil or take down nuclear. Those are my three targets. And there's no way a guy with a wide tie and a bushy beard is going to get into CBS going up through BlackRock and the stairs of the elevator. So I had to take it from outside. I believed people, if they had the choice, would choose what they watched and we would return power to the viewer. And why that was so important. The real problem with television was it, is it was intentionally designed to numb people's minds so that when they went down the aisle, they would grab a can of Coca-Cola because of the commercials. And that was called least objectionable programming. Don't make the program so good that they are mad at you for the commercial because that's the business we're in, but don't make it so uh, bad that they turn the channel. And so I, so I perceived a, a, a scale 
of where our technology in the day was getting more and more sophisticated, the atom bomb and everything that was going to come from that. And we were in the middle of mad, mutually secure destruction with the Russians. So our, our technology in the daytime was growing. And at night, people were turning on television and getting their mind washed just so they could watch commercials. So I said, we got to break that up. We, we got to restore the power of choice to the viewer. And what gave me the idea was I remembered that because we were such a materialistic society, when we bought something, we had ownership for the quality. And I go, wow, if we could get them to buy TV, they would have ownership for the quality. So um, I wrote a memo and I uh, basically told this guy who had sent me, and yeah, I think this is a doable thing, but we're going to have to start from scratch. This is like, we, we have to invent this from the ground. What they've been doing with your money isn't going to do us any good. They've been trying to invent a black box and that's not the secret. The secret is, can we get people to choose? Because at that time, the belief was television was so good, no one would pay for it. Inconceivable, they would pay for it. So the only reason for cable TV was re-delivering signals into the market, nothing else. I remember the first day I went knocking on doors with, with San Diego, California, uh, which was the largest cable system in America, maybe the world at that time. It had 75,000 subscribers, which was a huge number to us. And I made a contract. I negotiated a deal with Mission Cable of San Diego. And the deal said, I will use space on your cable you don't now use in what's called uh, the mid-band, meaning the space between channels six and seven is a huge wide open slot. And I said, I'll take a piece of that, which you can't use anyway, and I'll pay you the outrageous sum of $500 a month to let me put programs down there for a fee. And they laughed. And uh, they said, no, we want $1,000. And I said, well, how about 500? I'll give you a chunk of my company. They go, no, no we prefer $1,000. Well, two years later, we were in 26 states and the rest is history. I want to talk about the books that you write as well. You've been writing books about nuclear, hydrogen, solar energy, and oil uh, way before we all started talking about it and way before we all started talking about the climate crisis. You know, the people that you back in the 70s tried to provide, you know, good television for those people, just ordinary, hardworking um, Americans. And I know it's not just an American thing. How receptive are those people? Is that audience, that group of people to doing what they have to do to reverse climate change? Do you think when you talk about the amount of destruction in Louisiana from Ida, and then you compound it because it was even worse from the rainfall? When you look at the pictures of the people who died in Queens, when you look at the destruction all over the planet, with all that destruction, you would think people would get it that climate change is not a problem in the future, it's not coming. And I'm grateful that Biden finally said it when he was in Louisiana climate change is here. The only thing he pulled his punch on that was wrong, he said, it's not going to get better. No, actually, it's going to get a lot worse. And let me explain what I mean by that. Hmm. Climate change is geometric, not arithmetic. So it isn't two plus two is four plus two is six. It's two times two is four times four is 16. That's climate change. So for example, New Orleans, they are so proud of their levees holding. They built these brand new 15 foot levees. Do you know how high the water got in the storm surge this time from Ida? 14 feet. Guess what's coming? I actually offered to design a, a levy system that would actually work for the entire uh, Manhattan, which I'd love to put into place. A lot of times I design stuff and I just put it on the shelf because I can't do everything. But basically what I did is I designed a way to create a wall around Manhattan. And I took all the transportation systems. So the subways that are subways, I put them inside the base of the wall. 
I created a system for how you would protect all of Manhattan so it won't go underwater. I haven't seen anybody yet talk about that in a serious way, but I got a hot tip. If they don't come up with something like that, you're not going to save Manhattan. It's impossible. And you're not going to say, by the way, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Beijing, and I could list a whole bunch more, London. So people have no idea what's coming. And, and what's amazing is they've already seen so much they should be ex- able to extrapolate. So the ordinary person in London is probably no better informed than the ordinary person in America because people can't hold it. They, they, they think it's okay, it's bad, but it'll pass. No, it won't pass. It's just going to get so much worse so soon. The answer to your question is we really have to get people to wake up. And as always is the case, the least able to afford it will be the ones who will suffer the most. I mean, the people who died in Queens were the people who couldn't afford above ground living. They were in basements. Yeah. So so it's a, it's a, to me, it's a moral imperative. If you understand what I'm saying and you're well-educated, give back to society, help solve this problem. It is your own children and grandchildren will thank you. But in the meantime, it's the right thing to do for all the people who are going to be victims. We talk a lot about success on on this podcast, and and obviously success means you know different things to different people. And I wonder, would success for you be when it comes to climate change, which you obviously feel very very strongly about, whether success for you will be making some kind of change, some kind of inroads, some kind of uh, impact on people's thinking? Would that make you feel that you'd succeeded? Well, not if, if all it goes to is impact on people's thinking, no. No, I think we have to attack cl- climate change is so big. Every, no other issue uh, has the destructive effect. What we concluded uh, 15 years ago uh, when I wrote that book, Freedom from East Oil, the first chapter of that book was called a titanic miscalculation, where I said, people don't see what's coming with climate change. And if they don't, my God, help us. And the last chapter was the hydrogen economy. Like I took, what's the biggest thing one guy can do? Figure out how to get the hydrogen economy to happen. When that happens, and it's starting to, when hydrogen actually is replacing fossil fuel, like it already has, by the way, for forklifts all over the country. When you think of the hydrogen trucks that are now being purchased, okay, when you, and when you think of the hydrogen automobiles, all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, we could literally shift the entire transportation sector. We could shift the entire aircraft sector because my aircraft uses green hydrogen for lift and green hydrogen for propulsion. So there's no reason we can't get this done on that one sector, but that's the one I picked because I thought that was the Gordian knot. Mm. If that's all we do is my one airship, or a fleet of them even, won't do it. We have to do more than that if we are going to beat this thing and survive as a civilization that you'd want to live in. If we look across your entire career, which has been very different, you've transitioned many, many times, among all the roles that you have um, had, is there one which you would say aligns most with your beliefs and values, the beliefs and values that you've, you know, you've had from a young age? Well, they all do because I haven't done anything. I guess I've never had a job because I've never done anything that I didn't do because I had an ulterior motive that it would do something in society. Mm. So I've really never gone to work for a paycheck in that sense. But I would say that the role that I have played in all those years that I like the best. This is my wife got me to realize a few years back. I love to teach. I'm a teacher. And if I could just, you know, write books and, and research documents and, and, and my news call paper column that comes out every week or uh, my research papers or my other stuff, I would be really happy uh, if that's that, if that were my lot. But what I found out when I started the World Business Academy as a think tank, sometimes I can't get it done by teaching it. 
So whenever that was the case, then I would do it. So I call us a think and do tank. <laughs> and what makes us different than any other nonprofit at the World Business Academy, because I'm a dollar a year guy since 1986, actually. Um, so I had to make enough money to be able to do that, to be able to live a full-time job, which I have had in the private in the public sector. And I'm overjoyed that it has paid so well that I can do it at the scale I've done it and have made all the money I've made, like doing things that nobody had done before. And I'm not hanging on to any of them. I, I'm hoping people will copy me. When I left the cable television world, I left when to stay would have made me hugely wealthy. But the day I walked out the door of December 1976, I'll never forget, December 31, we had achieved at that point, all three networks had switched hands. And the definition of least objective program was buried for all time. Then the race was on. And by the way, you're seeing the natural outcome of that today where there's more people producing, there's Netflix, there's Amazon, da, 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 da. There's, there's no more studio system, right? And and I would like to do the same thing, actually, if I have time left uh, in a couple other areas, one of them being local media. Let's end with some uh, lighter, quickfire questions. What's your favorite time of the work day? Gee, um, I don't know. I think I'm more of a morning person and certainly than a night person. Um, I've... The most relaxing part of the day for me, because I'm on the West Coast, happens starting around two o'clock West Coast time because New York quits. <laughs> so it's always nice because it slows down out here. Mm. So I like that a lot. I'm a little more sharp in the morning first thing than I am probably at five o'clock, but I feel less uh, pressure at five than I do at 8.30, let's say. Interesting. With your TV background, I'd be really interested. What is the recent film or TV show that you have watched and liked? Well, I don't watch much TV, candidly. I, I watch a lot of news. Most of my news comes from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. I read the Financial Times of London every day. I, I like um, MSNBC. I think they do a great job of, of reporting, particularly Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes. I think they're all good, actually. Uh, I like... Um, I watch CBS News in the morning because I want to see their take on it. And I try to always watch uh, uh, Shepard Smith at night at 6 because I get a different take on the same stuff with a different pace, for slightly different audience. But I like seeing that balanced conversation. And then I start to distill what's important that I need to write about in my column and what's important I need to work on. Is there any advice that you wish you had listened to sooner or at all? Oh, gosh. <laughs> the, the, the wonder of, of being my age is that you can look back at all the really smart things you should have learned a real long time ago <laughs> and didn't. I, you know, I just, I went too fast. I think if I'd have slowed down, if I wasn't in such a hurry, I would have been a whole lot better uh, and probably more effective, candidly. Uh, certainly would have been a better husband and father and uh, and a better uh, member of my society uh, and had more friends and, you know, done things. But I, I don't have any hobbies. I mean, business is my hobby. Mm. You're a very driven man, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, thank you so much for talking to me, Ronaldo. Well, thank you, Asma. Well, I thought Ronaldo was amazing because he is so focused. He sees an opportunity. He sees something he wants to change. He wants to make an impact in. He goes in there. He kind of attacks it for a certain period of time, and then he moves on. 
But he's so, so emotive and so involved in, you can really hear it in his voice, in the whole trying to avert the climate emergency. You know, the way he was talking about it was was pretty stark. But I suppose that's just what passion is, really. And he had that in absolute bucket loads. Thank you for listening to Talking Success. You can find out more about Withers on their website, withersworldwide.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on your podcast app to get updates on the latest episodes or leave us a review. Next week, I'll be speaking to Sarah Soar, a trailblazer in the world of wealth management about what makes a good CEO and mentoring the next generation. Talking Success is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Leo Schick. The executive producer is Kate Taylor. And I'm Asma Mir. Goodbye. <laughs>